On a cold, gray morning, an experienced Navy clearance diver with a fear of sharks rolls off his dinghy into the water to begin a counter-terrorism training exercise. Just minutes after he plunges into the harbor, he feels a massive hit at the back of his leg. Not knowing what struck him, he turns to face a giant bull shark, its teeth sunk deep into the flesh of his leg. Paul had just one thought. This is it. I'm going to be eaten alive. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Lucca is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Coggan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. Paul DeGilder turned his life around at the age of 20. From an out-of-control teenager, he became an elite Army paratrooper and highly skilled clearance diver with the Australian Navy. With at least 500 hours of dives under his belt, Paul was trained to disarm mines and explosives and repair battle-damaged ships. But in 2009, during an underwater training session, Paul's life was about to take another 180-degree turn. He'd be forced to draw on his mental strength to survive a vicious shark attack that took an arm and a leg and nearly ended his life. Paul, thanks for coming out. Very welcome. Uh, so we're going to go right back into that moment. It was in a place in Sydney Harbour where we had worked for decades. I've personally done jobs there for years. Um, this is February 2009. And uh, all, all we were doing that day was acting as uh, attack swimmers, pretending to be attack swimmers. And some uh, equipment that the R&D department of the military had created was trying to track us autonomously. So the goal was they could take it anywhere they wanted and it would automatically track the movements um, with video and with sonar under the water um, to stop you know, terrorists putting bombs on our ships. And so we were pretending to be the terrorists and um, I was the second guy in the water. Uh, the, the first guy just got out and we were in a little black inflatable boat we call a Zod or a Zodiac. And I had a black wetsuit on, just a, a thin two, three mil uh, and a pair of black fins. And I rolled over the Zod and I was just, I was doing what we call finning. I was on the surface on my back, just kicking my legs. You know, pretty easy day, just Sydney Harbour, coming to the end of summer so it's usually pretty warm it was pretty overcast and you know temperate that day and really wasn't thinking too much of the day uh, as I always did when I was in the water I was thinking about sharks uh, because I, I was deathly afraid of sharks um, and I was just thinking it was funny because when we get taught to fin when we're going through Navy diver training that we always have to do it with our arms crossed against over our chest but I like to feel the water. I like to have my hands in by my sides. And because I'm not going through training anymore, you know, I'm an actual clearance, so I can do whatever the hell I want. So I'm just swimming along. I've got my hands in the sides. And I'm just thinking, if a shark attacked me, where would I be best to have my hands? If I had them down by my you side. You were thinking this on the day. Yeah. I was literally terrified of sharks. And being in Sydney Harbour, I, didn't know, I wasn't diving. I didn't have a buddy diver. I'm on the surface, which is where most shark attacks happen. And so this is, for me, a... a, a a scary sort of scenario but as usual I'm trying to put it to the back of my mind because I have a job to do but I've got nothing to think about because I don't really have a job um, and so I think 
if I have my hands by my side and a shark grabs me, what's going to happen? And I'm thinking, okay, well, it might grab my arm and my body and pin my arm to my side. And then I, I can only fight off with one hand. Then I put my arms across my chest and I thought, well, if it grabs me with my hands across my chest and it grabs my torso, then it'll get both my arms. And so I thought, okay, probably better by my side. And I, I put my hands down and instantly turned around to make sure that I was still headed in the right direction. And I got this massive whack in my side and it shocked me back to re what was going on. And I, I didn't really know, I didn't expect a shark because it didn't, it didn't hurt. It wasn't like 36 razor blades going into my leg. It was just a, a, a pressure, a very strong pressure. And so I turned around to look down and it actually took me a second to, to process what I was seeing because I'd never seen a dangerous shark before, let alone one that close to my face. And so I looked down and I just see this gigantic gray head and the lips are pulled back. I can see these teeth half embedded into my thigh, embedded into my wrist, one big black eye staring at me. And then my survival instincts kick in and I think I've, I've, I've got to fight back. And I'm thinking, Steve Owen, Discovery Channel, Shark Week. And it just instantly goes, go for the eyeball. But the shark's got my hand. And so- I'm gonna hold you right there. We're gonna go <laughs> back to this moment because we'll, we'll end it right where you get hit. And then yep. we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I just can't believe that you were thinking about sharks as you normally do on that morning and and then this happens yeah it's like uh, and, yeah. and and that you are this tough navy seal diver and you're scared of sharks you know i, I it's <laughs> it sort of doesn't fit you know well, well being a tough navy diver is not about not having fear it's of about course overcoming fear right yeah. I, I think what's so cool about your story paul is just where you came from uh your dad was a cop right mm -hmm. yeah um and and as a kid you you lost the direction for a while right I, I mean we're all born innocent we all get uh certain influences in our lives and take certain paths but where you ended up when you were what 15 years old yeah. it, it was a pretty challenging time in yeah, your life it was it was um school was really getting on top of me the the just overwhelming discipline of the all boys Catholic school. And then dad was away with the police a lot. So mum was doubling up on the discipline. So that was really stifling at the same time. Got brothers and sisters? Yeah, two younger brothers and a younger sister. Um, and so while mum was super disciplinary, um, she was also very focused on my younger siblings and not on what was going on with me. And I was really struggling um, to the point what where- What was I, it you were struggling with? Um, feeling like I had no control uh, and I really had no direction and I didn't have a lot of guidance as to how I was supposed to be feeling. It wasn't healthy. Um, I, I really did lose direction. I didn't know who I was supposed to be. I, I'd been picked on a lot. Um, so bullying was a When did a that start? Facet. When did the bullying start? Um, that started, so we were in Canberra at that time. So we moved to Canberra. Uh, capital of Australia when I was 10 we moved from Melbourne and the bullying actually started um, before we'd even moved maybe um, year two year three uh, because I was short I was skinny I had big ears and a face full, face full of freckles so I was I was an easy target the the only thing I was good at was swimming 
my dad was um, at one stage the football coach, the Aussie rules football coach, and I was the worst player on the team. Uh, and so oh, that couldn't have been good. <laughs> <laughs> so all I had was swimming, and I was really, really good at swimming. Um, but by 15, I was just sick of it. I was just tired of it, and that was the only thing that, that grounded me, I, I now know. Uh, and so I started looking for um, the thrills elsewhere. Um, so the, the bullying thing is, it, it, it's an interesting topic. I, I, I was bullied at school uh, as well. I was a boarder. You mm -hmm. were a day student, right? You were yep, going in yep. and out. So you were bullied during the day. Yeah. Um, and, and I've often heard people say, you know, the bullying, it's, it's good for you. It, you know, it hardens you up and forces you to, you know, face the demons and all that sort of thing. And I've always said, you know, that's just rubbish. You know, yeah, nobody I mean, should grow up with that kind of... I don't agree either. Yeah, I mean, nobody should have to grow up with that and the threat of somebody else using force against somebody who's... Just feeling like you're less. Yes. Like you're there just to be punished. You're the, there to be the brunt of someone else's amusement. And, and, and you wonder what... You know, I, I often wonder, the guys that bullied me, I mean, I can remember them specifically. I could name them. Mm. Um, and, and, and one of them I ended up meeting up with later in life and I realized how quite pathetic he was as a, as a human being. And, and obviously he was dealing with his own mm -hmm. demons. So I think I'm more forgiving than I was at the time. I think that's often the case as well. You know, they're, they're bullying because of other issues they have. Because they were bullied. You know, yeah. that was the thing that they kept saying. Well, they're saying. bullied at home. But, but what, I've, what I've come to realize is that that bullying, whatever happened to, to both of us with these people bullying us, as hard as it was and as wrong as it is for anybody to be bullied, if you can come through it, that adversarial moment in your life, you do draw strength from it later in life, or at least I have. Do, have, do you feel like maybe having gone through that, there was something positive that came out of it because you, no. No, <laughs> not, not in the slightest. There was wow. nothing positive that came out of that. Um, I, I struggled with confidence for a really long time. And I generally never, sp I, I never spoke about it. I never really told anyone Because you about were ashamed? Um, I don't know if it was shame. I just, I don't know. I, I, I kept a lot of things internal. I think that's probably um, relevant to who I am as well. Like uh, in the long term, I kept a lot inside. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to. Who am I going to talk to? Mum, who yells at me constantly for screwing up and is looking after my brothers. My dad, who's away all the time. There were one or two friends that I had that I weren't even sure were my friends because I just didn't feel like I could trust or rely on anyone. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I ended up taking it out of myself and I used to slash my arms up. Oh. Um, fortunately, by that stage, I did start to develop some solid friendships and that was what pulled me out of it. You know, I'm, I'm not very religious. Uh, but I was raised in the Catholic Church. And so killing myself was never an option because we were always raised to say that suicide is the cardinal sin. Mm -hmm. it's, the, you know, it's throwing the gift of life back in God's face. And even though I wasn't sure about this whole God thing, I didn't want to risk it. So I was never going to kill myself. It was just the, the fact that the, the cutting and the pain and the blood, it felt like the only thing I could control. And so I could inflict this upon myself and I could feel the satisfaction and the blood, you know, and a lot of people who 
do this um, experience the same sort of thing. And I've actually had, I, I wrote about this in my book and it was- Tell um, us the name of your book. So No Time for Fear. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the things that I was really hesitant to put in there because, you know, uh, by that stage, I'm this all powerful, strong clearance diver, army paratrooper. And to go back and face some of those realities of who I used to be was quite hard. But those are the things that people have come up to me on the street and draw and, strength from and thank me for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And said, I was, I was a self harmer. I am a self harmer. And I just wanted to thank you for talking about that in your book because it made me feel less alone. I took that self-inflicting pain of cutting myself uh, into kickboxing and I started doing fighting training, Muay Thai. And so that was a different sort of pain, but it was constructive pain. I think the, the greatest thing you can do is draw strength from yourself. Mm -hmm. If you're strong enough to do that to yourself, which mm -hmm. is something that a lot of, most people are never gonna be able to do. No They're never way. gonna be able to inflict that sort of pain on themselves. If you're strong enough to do that, you're strong enough to do something else that is less harmful to yourself and is actually constructive because that self-harm and that self-inflicting pain it, it, nothing good is going to come out of it. So take that, take that strength that you have and pour it into something else. So even if it's something like what I did where it was Muay Thai kickboxing, mm -hmm. where you're still inflicting pain on yourself, but at the same time, you're learning self-defense and you're learning fighting. And if you're being bullied, you, you learn how to fight back against the bullies. If it's, you know, start running, start inflicting that pain on yourself through running. I took that fight training and I went out and I started using it on the street uh, it started I never initially planned on doing that it was just that I, I turned up to school one day I'd been doing fighting for a few months and this guy called my mom something that I'm not gonna um, repeat and so I elbowed him in the face and knocked him out and I never got picked on again well the fact that you could inflict pain on yourself meant that you obviously had this ability to tolerate pain mm -hmm. yeah and, and that's something that you speak about quite a bit, which is just this idea that in a way we need to be, as human beings, we need to be pushing the boundaries by having this tolerance to discomfort, I guess you yeah. could call it, right? Get, which is pain. Getting uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And why, why is that some, a life lesson that you really want to share with people? Do you feel like people are just trying to manipulate their lives to be too comfortable? I think, yeah, totally, definitely. Everyone's looking for the next easy thing, the next comfort. What's going to make my life easier? What's going to make things simpler? Getting uncomfortable is where you work out and you find out what you're truly capable of. So that's a workout in itself, meaning exactly. you go to the gym, you pound the weights or whatever, but the, the training, getting your body used to being uncomfortable. Getting your body used to getting up out of bed yes. to go and get uncomfortable. That you know? discipline. Yeah. Right, and then well, just even even just the repetitive programming of yourself, yes. forming it into a habit. Sometimes for me now, it's not even discipline. Right, it's habit. I I try and remind myself that you just do it. And sometimes thinking about something too much is is not a good thing. Right, just action, taking action, getting up out of bed to go to the gym. Once you're up. It's not as hard. And once you're into it, once you're in the gym, it's not as hard. Once you're used to going and training and running and bike riding and swimming and kayaking or whatever it is, when you're out there doing it, I, I guarantee you 99% of the time you're going to be going, why don't I do this all the time? Mm -hmm. you know, going to yoga, going to meditation. It, it's all great stuff. Get uncomfortable because comfort. people get comfortable in their misery. And human beings are inherently programmed to tolerate discomfort mm -hmm, yeah. it, it, and, and over time we've tried to take this the discomfort out of our life and the problem is we've now ended up having to kind of 
manufacture it back into our lives. Like the fact that people are going out and doing Tough mutters and doing all of these things. Exactly. It's like, Replicating I mean, who we used to be thousands of years ago for fun. Right. Can you imagine <laughs> Neanderthal man like going, hey, uh, you know, we're going to have these challenges where we're going to run human beings through... Uh, through electric shock treatment in a you know some race course yeah. and be like what are you crazy <laughs> yeah, exactly I, I, i've got to run away from these wild predators <laughs> and what, what what are you doing you know we're not designed to be stagnant and comfortable we're designed to continuously push our boundaries that's how the human civilization has come this far by pushing our boundaries by getting uncomfortable by doing things that other people might feel is impossible yeah you know, impossible is just a word other people use to to limit their own potential because they don't want to get uncomfortable get uncomfortable what i'm really interested in is how you decide you, you decided to go train to become a fighter you have this moment at school where you stand up for your mother's honor um but then you said you sort of went wayward for a while you, you mm. really lost direction you're really in a, I guess, in no man's land for a while, fighting with yourself, I'm guessing, and yeah. some demons. How do you go from that person to becoming then this elite soldier? Where, where and what prompted you to make that change? So my, my brothers joined before I did, uh, and they didn't have any illusions that I was going to be able to make it in the army at all um and there was there's a huge there's a gap there of a quite a few years um i, I you know i hit 17 yeah uh, i was almost 18 and, and i was creating such turmoil at home with not coming home or coming home stoned or what whatever and i was i was getting arrested for stealing because we didn't have any money so i found a great way to get stuff you just steal it yeah and so i got um i got caught stealing a couple of times I which is not a, good if you're the son of a cop it, well that was the only reason that i got out of trouble so yeah, it's kind of okay. good okay from that <laughs> not part, good yeah. for him but not good for him can <laughs> yeah. you imagine oh yeah that was my son uh -huh. yeah. yeah um you know i ended up um, in jail cells occasionally, like oh. um, just getting into trouble in the cities at night, um, and a dad ended up kicking me out of home. Uh, so I was, I ended up uh, living with two girls that I knew from school. Uh, their how parents. are you surviving? I mean, how are you paying rent and surviving? Uh, well, I didn't really have to pay rent there because their parents paid their Indonesian girls. Their parents, okay. her, I think her dad was a diplomat or something. Uh, they paid for them to have their own apartment and live in Sydney, in Canberra and, and go to school. So they just sort of took me in, let me stay there. I ate their leftover foods. I, I went and apply, applied for unemployment. And so I sat on un unemployment for on the dole for like a year and a half. Um, my and what was your relationship with your parents like during that oh, time? Oh, it was non-existent. Non there was none. And no. your brothers and sisters? No, didn't, nothing. nothing. Didn't see them, didn't talk to them. Was that probably... I was so self-involved. Was it a terribly lonely time for you or... It was in some ways, but at the same time, um, I didn't have to go home. So I was with my friends all the time. Right. Doing um, what you want. Yeah. Doing whatever Selfish the hell I want. Selfish choices. Yeah, exactly. And I just started smoking a lot of weed. Uh, and that just demotivated me further and further. I wasn't fighting, which was a good thing. I wasn't stealing, which was a Were good thing. Were you keeping yourself fit? No. I was doing no training whatsoever. Uh, I was just skinny and unhealthy and i didn't have much money so uh i was lactose intolerant so i was you know i'd eat a loaf of white bread and drink a liter of soy milk i was selling weed on the side now I'm smoking weed i'm selling weed i'm working in a very unhealthy environment and 
I was still surrounding myself with pr some pretty unsavory characters. Um, and one night I went to a party and got jumped by 20 guys. And that, that was the last straw. I just thought something's got to change. You know, if, if I stay like this, I'm going to be dead or in jail by the time I'm 23. And so, you know what? I, I just decided the only thing I can do is remove myself from this environment that I'd become a product of. And, and how so, old were you at that point? Uh, I was, it was just before my 21st birthday. Okay. And so I, I moved up to Brisbane and, and arrived on my 21st birthday and tried Two. to start a new life. I moved in with my buddy, the DJ, and his American friends who were uh, rappers. You know, they ran a, a hip hop radio station on community radio. They ran night, hip hop nightclubs at the clubs. They were making rap music. And so I started hanging out with them and making rap music as you do as a white Australian 21 year old. Can you give us a couple no, of lyrics? No, you don't want me to do that. No, go for <laughs> it. Just a, just a couple of oh, lines. Man. Um, Load it up and take a sip. A bottle of smoke, you'll have to choke. So when you take, make sure it's holding before release. Embrace the peace, don't hold back. Nah, nah, there's no use. The feelings of Paul and crystal induced. Not satisfied with the heart, so we're chasing la la. The smoother than butter to get us higher. <laughs> Dude, uh, you still got it. From 1998. So it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. We were having a good time. Uh, but not a lot of money in white rappers in Australia in 1998. So the financial constraints ended up taking their toll. I ended up in a house with no electricity, no running water, showering at the public showers at South Bank, eating two minute noodles for every meal, you know, sleeping on two ripped so couch like cushions 20, put together. You're like 21 years so, old. 22 now. So you're 22 years old and, and what a life. I with mean, no just, prospects though. Just up and yeah. down and up and down. Yeah, just, just looking for any life raft to jump on to take me to my cause I, I i just i needed purpose and that was something that i couldn't find and i i feel like it's true with everyone we need we need to feel like we have value we need to have purpose why do you think you were struggling to find it what, what was what do you i mean what would you i think it all comes back to not having the guidance of not knowing what i needed to do to get, i didn't i didn't have an idea of what jobs were out in the world that I could mm -hmm. do and that was the first step to not paying not being able to pay attention in school like what the not knowing why I had to pay attention well what am I learning this mm -hmm. for what what's the direction if for me I need to know what why I'm doing what I'm doing uh, and it's even true now when we go but out on that's that applies to everybody right I mean we need to like you said we need to feel like we have purpose yeah that acknowledgement that we're of value to the world that yeah. we have something to contribute. Yeah. What would you say to your younger self now? If you could be It would be with a yourself? very long conversation. <laughs> it, it may go over several it, weeks. What would the um, essence of it be? You're sitting with your 17 year old self. It would be about finding that purpose. It'd be about finding the things that you love to do, the things that you could imagine yourself doing as a career. Do you have regrets? Like, do, do you look back on that period of time with regret and think, man, I wish I had got onto this purpose earlier in well, my life. Or do I, you feel that that was a part of making you who you are today? Like you almost had to go through that. I did look back on it with regrets for a long time. Um, but then I realized certain things about my life that have come into play and helped me because of those. Uh, for instance, you know, and, and it's very, it's very poignant The I, I really regretted the period of my life where I was smoking a lot of weed and I was doing a lot of drugs uh, and living in a cloud and almost depressed. I really, really regretted 
doing that because that was my choice and I chose that life and I it was something that I always wished had never happened and then after the shark attack where I was self-medicating oxycontin endone gabapentin tamazepam all of these drugs and I realized that I was living in a cloud again and I knew what it was like to live in that in that cloud in that headspace where I was unmotivated and I didn't care about achieving things and I, I was just I wasn't happy I wasn't sad I was just leveled out and I looked back on the period when I was in my late teens thinking, holy shit, I, I am not going to go back to that. I refuse to be that person again. And that got me off the pain meds. And that got me off the antidepressants for the nerve pain and got me off, got me off everything. It was a driving factor in me getting off the drugs in half the time that I was actually supposed to. So as much as I regretted it up until that point, now I know better. A lot of the times, the things that we go through in our lives, the, the hardships and the turmoils and the struggles, it's a training process for what's to come. Although bullying is wrong, I, I know that that experience made me stronger. And I know it's different for you. But for me, I drew a lot of strength from that mm -hmm. because I think it, it made me like it made me think I'm never going back to that. There's no way anybody's going to bully me like that in my life again. Yeah. You know, I was I was going to get the better of that bully. So you, you took that lesson. I took yeah. that lesson. But what's interesting is I confronted that bully years later. And I'd had all this anger in me that if I saw and I and I kept thinking, if I ever see this person, I'm going to destroy them mm -hmm. <laughs> because I had I was a tiny little kid like you. Yeah. And I was different and picked on because of being different, different accent and all the rest of it. And, and when I finally was confronted with him and I saw him, I suddenly felt really sorry for him. He just looked so pathetic. And I realized in that moment that he, there was something that made him do that to me. And then I felt really bad for him. But I also realized that there was this instant reversal of power, physical power, because I was much taller than him, much bigger than him, and I knew I could destroy him physically. And in that moment, it, it, all that anger and everything just dissipated. Mm -hmm. And I've walked away from it. And now I, I look back on that with regret, but I don't want to destroy the guy. You know, I, I, no good can come from that. No, Nothing. not at all. That's growth of character. Yeah, I drew, drew a lot of strength from that. It gave me a drive, you mm -hmm. know, to achieve certain things in, in life. Yeah, and, and just like I didn't take the lesson from the bullying, um, I just kind of got over it and, and realized that I, I would never be a bully. Um, and just like I used being on drugs and stuff to get me past my painkillers and medication when I was recovering, some people aren't going to take that lesson that I took. Some people aren't going to take the, the lesson. They're not going to identify that there is a lesson in that. And, and that's the biggest problem. They continue to feel like a victim, that they're powerless, that they have no choice. But that's the only power that you do have, the power of choice. Mm. You know, how are you going to overcome this? Are you going to be strong? Are you going to be weak? Are you going to take control of the situation? That is the absolute only power you have, yeah. that choice. You, you have a, a great quote where you say, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Yeah, the army taught me a lot of lessons. Um, and that was one of the first ones. Um, the improvise, adapt, and overcome. Um, it, it stayed with me my whole career. And uh, we did use it occasionally throughout my career, but it really came into play after the shark attack or when I was trying to recover. Um, I was trying to learn how to live again being literally half the man that I was physically. Yeah. yeah, missing my hand and missing my leg and just trying to work out how to do things. I haven't found out yet how you got from this 
from leaving this the doobie land and the yeah. rapping and then you end up in the military. homeless almost um i was being lost i did what we sometimes do when we're lost um i called mum, and i asked for some advice and she told me to talk to my brothers i said look i'm, I'm thinking of joining the army and she said they were with the army had, already my younger brothers had already joined the army they were yep. both in artillery and they were doing um, well yeah, one of them had joined the army to stay out of jail, yeah. basically. So uh, he was doing much better than he was yeah. as a civilian. Um, and so I called my brothers up and asked for their opinion and they just laughed. They just thought there is no way that you are going to make it in the army. Um, but they did say it was a good life. You know, they were both artillery, so they got to shoot cannons and rockets and get paid to travel and paid to play sport and hang out with your friends. Just don't join infantry. You will not make it. It's too hard. Don't do it. So I joined infantry. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have your baby brothers tell you what to do. No way. Yeah, screw you. They so. underestimated <laughs> yeah. you, didn't they? Um, and so I went off to basic training and, and that was probably one of the hardest bits. Just going from, you know, you get off that bus. Yeah, they're all, the, the, the instructors are all friendly and jovial when you're getting onto the bus to go to basic oh, training. Oh, sure they are, yeah. yeah. Until and you then, sign on the line. And then you get there and they turn into devil dogs. Yes. Um, and I just, you know, one of the turning points was even before I went to basic training and I was going, I, I passed, passed the physical tests easily, uh, passed the aptitude tests, and I was going through the psych psych psychiatric evaluation. And as I was leaving that meeting, the doctor um, said, good luck with your career. And it was just those simple words, good luck with your career. I had a career. It was something that I had never even- Purpose. Yeah, I had never conceived that I could have before because I didn't even, I flunked out of high school. Yeah. How was I gonna have a, anything like that? And it was just that word, career. You know, that's, that's a building block. And it was also an, an acknowledgement from him that you were worthy of it. Exactly, career. yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, a stamp I of could approval. be that person, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that gave me a sense of achievement just in itself. And never undervaluate, um, undervalue the, the power of just a good word, a kind word, a well done, a pat on the back. You know, the, the smallest sense of achievement, the smallest um, uplift you can give to someone might change their whole day, their whole week, or their whole outlook or their whole on life. life. Yeah, exactly. So, how quickly did you work out though when you went into the basic training that you had the right stuff? Oh, I hated it. Did you? <laughs> but did you? You must have seen guys like dropping off like flies. Well, around you couldn't. You. you couldn't leave. That was the only oh, thing. Oh, you like, couldn't. Like, leave. You couldn't leave unless you had. Unless you went into barracks and told the instructors that you were gonna, you were suicidal and you were gonna kill everyone, or you had something like a severe back injury that they couldn't easily disprove, right. you couldn't, you couldn't leave. You were done. You were. <laughs> That's you, it. You, it was yeah. a, is a contract. Yeah, I did, I did. I had, you know, I had one thing in my favor was the fact that I didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any choice. I had nowhere to go. I had no money. I had no education to fall back on. I had no career skills. I had no, so, I instead of trying to change my set of circumstances, which is what I always did. I tried to change the way that I perceived the situation. And there were things that I hated about basic training, but there were things that I did enjoy as well. I did enjoy the fact that my physicality was coming back. That in- You could shine. Yeah, it, well, I started to shine, you know? I, I started to do, I started to get stronger and I started to get fitter and I started to get faster and I was a good swimmer, so I killed it in the pool. And then all of a sudden I was good at running and then all of a sudden I was good at pack marching. And I could, 
you know, I could help people through the obstacle course. So I could run up with my pack on, jump over the obstacles, and all of a sudden I'm up in front of everyone. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do what they're teaching me. You know, I'll, I'll look after the, the guys that aren't going so well. And I'd so wait for the saw obstacles. So you as a leader at that point. Exactly. And so I started going, instead of being the all shining athlete up the front, I would wait for the slowest guys. And I ended up getting the Platoon's PT award at the end of that. Okay. And that was another sense of achievement there where I thought, okay, well, maybe I am going to be good at this. And then you go off to infantry training. Yes. And it's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, it, it was really hard, but I passed. It was like 10, 12 weeks of training and I passed. And uh, they asked us what battalion we wanted to go to. And I didn't really know. They just said, oh, who he wants to jump out of a plane. And I just thought, yeah, that sounds awesome. So they sent me off to Sydney to be a, a paratrooper in the army. Um, and the first, first year there was pretty rough because you're the new guy and you get picked on again. Um, I, I was away on exercise. We had a, um, a couple of battalions that were in Iraq and they needed some reinforcements. So I, I was away on exercise and my, my uh, CSM, my company sergeant major came up to me with a phone, which was really weird. And he said, here, Paul, the boss wants to speak to you. And I was like, what the hell? That's, that's so, I'm just a little private, you know, why is the bloody officer commanding wanting to speak to me? And he said, hey, uh, my nickname was Dutchie because of my last name. He said, Dutchie, do you want to go to the sand pit? And I said, hell yeah, boss, I do. And he said, all right, we'll jump on a bus. You're coming back to base to, to get trained up. So like, I cut away the exercise. Me and four of my buddies went back and we started training and started getting all of our supplies, uh, getting our briefings. I started learning Arabic. And then four days before we were supposed to leave, they canceled our trip. And we were only supposed to go for two and a half months to, re to reinforce the security detachment. And apparently the chief of army didn't want to send anyone for less than three. So we got cut. And so all our motivations just dropped. Like the bottom just fell out of it. And I just, I started being disenchanted with my work. Uh, my work ethic was slipping. And I started to notice this. Um, that's one of my, my good points is I start to know, I notice when something's wrong. And I know that there is things you can do about that. So I just thought, well, I don't wanna be dissatisfied with my job. I don't wanna be angry all the time. I don't, want, I don't want to dread coming to work. So I thought, well, okay, well, I know that there's these, these other units are, are getting deployed. You know, I'll, I'll just, I'll go and see if I can get into one of these other units. And we went and did this exercise called Hewitt training, which is helicopter underwater escape training, where you learn to escape from a helicopter yep. if it crashes yep. into the ocean. And one of the safety divers there. Yeah, oh, it's amazing fun. I loved it. Um, but- You're belted in, in a helicopter, it goes underwater, Flips upside Flips down upside in a pitch black room and you got to escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. awesome fun. Um, but the safety divers there were this thing called clearance divers. Yes. And I'd heard about them. And you're a great swimmer. I was a great swimmer, but I didn't know anything about what they did really. I just knew that they were badass and no one looked directly at them. Elite. Yeah, yeah. It was like SAS and commandos for underwater. And so I thought, well, that's, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. And so I started looking into it a little more. Um, Decided to give it a crack, um, put my paperwork in to, to go and test out for it. So eventually I got on this course, uh, ship's divers course. You learn to scuba dive, which was great because I'd never scuba dived in my life, and learn to search for bombs. And those two things don't generally go together. So um, it, it was a pretty steep learning curve, especially for me who doesn't retain knowledge very well. So 
Uh, I just studied my ass off as, as much as I could, which wasn't much because we were working from six in the morning till eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Um, but I passed. Got through that course, went on to the selection course. Um, it's called uh, Clearance Diver Acceptance Testing, 10 days of absolute torture. Um, Give us an example of absolute torture. Um, so the, the first day you turn up, you do this thing. It's a run called Gate to Gate. And it lasted, it's, only, it's really quite short. It's only a, a couple of miles, but it lasts about four hours. Um, and you're doing Indian file, um, fireman's carries, hill sprints, stair sprints, um, push-ups, chin-ups, all throughout this run. And then we ran down the hill back to the dive school through the Navy base, got to the bottom of the hill, and the instructors said, all right, you've got five minutes to stretch and we're going to do it again. Exactly what you just yeah, done. Yeah, huh. and you're another all, four hour. And everybody's run. feeling dead. Yeah, everyone's everyone's like, "Thank God, this is over. It's dark. We're going to knock off now." And then all of a sudden, instantly, you're looking at another four hour run, and we lost oh. we lost half of the course just then. And so we started. Just some with, guys just could they just, No, they're just like, "There's no way." They're just like, "I can't do that. There's no way." Um, so we lost a lot of people just on that first Which run. is exactly why they did it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So then you go, and you do. It wasn't a mind game. It was like, then you go and do it again. You know, you're swimming from Mossman to Manly in the middle of the night. So 11 p.m., they'll wake, they'll send you to bed at nine after a full day of doing stuff. You get two hours sleep. They'll wake you up at 11, tell you to put on your gear and meet them at the end of the pier. And then you're swimming from Mossman to Manly and back in the middle of the night. It takes five or six hours. I, was, and, I think it was like three hours there with the tide, um, four hours back, something and, like and, that. And, and in the, at night? At night. And you're scared of sharks? Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, there's 10 of us lined out on our backs with our arms interlinked with overalls on and fins. And we've got to kick our way all the way across Sydney Harbour. And you didn't and want back. to be the guy on either end? Not really, you no. You want to be the yeah. guy in the middle? So you just, you fall asleep in the water and you start choking on water and that's what wakes you up. We, we did so much of that finning throughout those 10 days the guys were waking up in the in, at night while they're sleeping with their legs kicking so there was that and then you get a you know you get a couple hours sleep and then it's a half marathon that absolute torturous training is so important because you have to force these people to believe that they can push past anything that is in front of them and that and that's what it was it was it got to the point where when you're a clearance diver you can do anything that is asked of you. There's no ifs or buts. There's no, well, I don't know if we can do that. It's like they give you a task and you say, yes, sir. And, and that's you your got job. It. Yeah. But the other thing too is that knowing that your fellow soldier has gone through what you've gone through exactly. must give you a tremendous amount of comfort because it's not somebody from that pool of 32. No, it's the elite 10 that made it all the way to the end. And that's yeah. the guy you're, you're out there with. Yeah, exactly. And that's got to give you real comfort yeah that was one of the the highest points of my life getting that you know I, I, after the 10 days going in for my interview and everyone's lined up downstairs waiting for their their final interview to find out if they've made it and you go into this little room and there's a panel of all the the navy diving bosses there and it's so freaking intimidating and then they're like yeah pull together you did this and you did this and this is and we've decided to give you an a pass and it was instantly, it's like my eyes started welling up, but I didn't want to look like a pussy in front of all these big, tough Navy chiefs. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to hold it in. I'm like, thank you, sir, stood up attention. I started walking out of the room. They're like, all right, get back here. I was like, fuck, 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 what? And they're like, come and give us a handshake. And they walk past the panel and shake all their hands. And I'm just like, I'm trying to keep the tears in my eyes because it was just, it was such a long, hard process to, to get accepted. And then you go on to nine months of basic clearance diver training. 
where that wasn't even the hardest thing what you just went through well i'm blown away by the story considering we i mean you think about the other paths that you could have taken in your life exactly yeah and we yeah. wouldn't be sitting here and now. that's you know that's what i was saying before it's that power of choice yeah you know, i i could quite easily have just chosen that the easy path so paul let's go back to the moment now and finish this story mm-hmm. uh the last thing i remember <laughs> was a very vivid description you were telling of roughly 36 teeth sunk into your leg yeah so it, and and you're in survival mode it's hard to describe pain so imagine a bear trap and we all know how powerful they are and they've got those big steel spikes now imagine a bear trap with two rows of 36 razor blades and it, it slams shut as hard as a bear trap but it doesn't just stay there then it starts grinding against itself like chainsaws on either side of your body until it slices all the way through to meet in the middle that's what that's that's what it was like eight seconds of that no it's not instantaneous it's eight seconds of absolute it's like a saw movie and 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 through the bone as well through through the bones in my hand and through the whole of my hamstring um, didn't didn't hit the bone in my leg. It, it missed my femoral artery by a couple of millimeters. Uh, so I would have actually died if it had hit that. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm. The pain didn't kick in until it started to shake me. I start. I was trying to fight back. I was trying to push it off. And then it, you said you went for the eye. I right? went for the eye, but I couldn't. I couldn't reach it because it had me by the back of the leg and I was maybe an inch away my finger was an inch away from its eyeball so I put my hand on its nose and tried to push it off but that just pushed the teeth of the lower jaw deeper into my leg and so I I cocked back to punch it like you know punch it in the nose is what everyone tells you but as soon as I started to do that my blood must have drifted into its mouth it must have realized that I could be eaten and that's when it started to shake me so all the power went out of my punch and it was totally ineffective it took me underwater and the pain kicked in instantly and I was in total agony it it brought me back to the surface I took a quick gasp of air because I thought we were probably going to go back down and we went straight back down and it just kept tearing me to pieces and I was I'm in agony I'm totally terrified because this is my my worst nightmare and I'm drowning at the same time My, my lungs are starting to fill with water I'm choking and after about six seconds, I accept the fact that I'm going to die because there is nothing that I can do. You, you can't imagine what it's like to have a 600-pound animal made of muscle attached to you in, in an element that is not where you're supposed to be. You can't grab onto anything. You have no purchase. You're not on the ground. You, like, you're totally weightless. This thing has you at its mercy. And so all I could do was accept that I was going to die. I realized that I'm not, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going home today. And so as soon as I actually accepted that, and, and it wasn't like time slowed down, it was like the adrenaline was making my brain work so fast. This is all in nanoseconds. This, my, my mind is thinking of all this stuff. And I think, am I ready to go? And I thought, well, I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I've done more than I could ever have perceived. And yeah, you know what? I don't mind. I'm okay. I'm gonna, if I'm going to die, I'm good with it. And so a calm washed over me and I was ready to just die. But the shark removed the hamstring, took my hand off, and it wasn't attached to me anymore. My wetsuit made me positively buoyant, so I popped to the surface and... I realized I wasn't dead. The, the, the shark's tail splashed water in my face. 
I saw my safety boat and I thought, shit, I've got to get out of here before it comes back. So I started to swim towards my safety boat. You know, the, all the, the, the instinctual um, uh, flight or fight kicked in straight away. I, I wasn't feeling any pain at that point. The adrenaline was overriding that. Plus, I think the shark had ripped through the, oh, like 25 centimeters of my nerve. So I just couldn't even feel my leg. Uh, I didn't know what was wrong with it. I just couldn't feel it. So I start to swim, but my hand's gone. I just... It just wasn't there. My arm ended at the end of my wetsuit. So the medical training kicked in and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding. So I'm swimming with one hand and one leg back to the safety boat through a pool of my own blood. The guys said it was so thick they could actually taste it in the air when they were coming to grab me. Um, but I didn't even think I was going to make it. I had no, I, no belief that I was going to make it to that safety boat. I, I knew it was a bull shark. I thought in my head that bull sharks usually swim in packs. I'm bleeding profusely. This shark or another shark is going to come and grab me and I'm going to die. But I just kept swimming anyway because what else was I going to do? And thankfully, the guys in the safety boat got to me first. They, my body was in such a weird angle. They actually thought that I was snapped in half. Um, they grabbed me, one person grabbed me by the upper body, one by the lower body, just in case my body fell to pieces. They pulled me into the boat, laid me flat, and just out of the sheer relief of being safe and not eaten anymore, I, I passed out. And then everyone's training kicked in. They all, they all did exactly what was required of them to keep me alive uh, until the paramedics got there. And it was, it was insane. You know, uh, they, they stimulated my heart to wake me back up because they thought I was going into cardiac arrest. I got my priorities in order and I asked my buddy Tomo to look after my motorcycle uh, and then they started tying off tourniquets around my leg, heading towards the pier where my chief was and he took control. One of the guys had to stick his hand inside my leg and pinch closed an artery just to stop me from bleeding out. Um, so it was, a, it was a rough morning for more than just me. Okay? Eventually the paramedics turned up, thank God, and they, they pumped me full of morphine. Um, which was good and bad because I was in, at, at that point when the paramedics got there, the pain was incredible. I, I was screaming for drugs. And then they gave me so much and I was begging for more, but then the pain drifted away, but the morphine had lowered my blood pressure so much and I was lacking a lot of blood already that I started having respiratory problems in the back of the ambulance. And that, again, I thought I was gonna die because I physically could not breathe. I just didn't have the strength to make to fill my lungs full of air. So the paramedics had to coach me through that and, and they were incredible. Um, yeah, and, and luckily the hospital wasn't too far away you know, from, from Garden Island at Woolloomooloo to St. Vincent's in, in uh, Kings Cross. 10 minutes in good traffic. Unbelievable story. So they, they got me there and like the surgeon said, he said, once we get a shark attack survivor to the hospital, if they're still alive, generally speaking, we can keep them alive. So that's what happened. And then it was just a, another whole life-changing uh, sequence of events. After hearing that story, what is quite incredible to me is that you've said that you are not happy that this happened, but you have embraced that this has happened and that you're a better person because of it? De yeah, definitely. I. Now it's gotten to the point where I wouldn't change it. And I never thought that I would feel that way. Um, but life's too good. 
and I don't know what sort of person I would be if it didn't happen. I don't know if I would have stayed in the military, uh, if I would have gone on to something bigger or better or something worse or I have no idea. But I know how good my life is now. I know how fulfilling my life can be, the opportunities that have come because of the way that I've dealt with this problem. Uh, and life is, dude, have you seen where I live? Oh, you live there too. So <laughs> yeah, like I get, to, I get to live in LA. I've always dreamed of visiting America. Now I get to live there. I get paid to travel and have adventures just like I did in the military, but now I don't have a boss and so I, I get to do all of these incredible things and walk in the footsteps of my heroes like David Attenborough and Steve Irwin and Dr. Suzuki and all of these incredible people. I grew up watching on TV, Albie Mangles, the Leyland brothers, out having adventures in the wild. That's my life. So tell us about your life. What is your life now? Um, I work for Discovery Channel on Shark Week. It's uh, one of the jobs I have. I have all of my fingers in all the pies. I, I like to, you know, I, I can't do one thing all the time. I, I, I get too bored with that uh, for lack of a better word so um well what happened was uh, you know I, I recovered from somewhat recovered from the, the the surgery and losing the leg and I went home and I, I started training you know I had this drive to get back to work that was the big thing the the driving motivation motivating factor was I need to get back to work because I'm not qualified to do anything else so I had this horrible vision of having a, a, a life without value and purpose, uh, like we were talking about before. That like it was, had been taken away from you, literally, exactly, physically. Yeah, yeah, with the parts of my body, you know, because my job was all about being able to do whatever I was asked to do. So all of a sudden, I couldn't do that. So I, but I didn't know what else to do. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to get it back. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that's what I'm going to do. So I just started training my ass off, uh, learning how to use my body again. I got the best prosthetics available and I went back to work after six months um, and I started instructing Navy divers. And I did that for three years and sl slowly companies asked me to speak at their events and I would just say, no, there's no way. I quit an IT course. Um, when I was younger because half of it involved public speaking in front of the class. And I mean, so I just two fears it. in life, sharks public and speaking. public speaking. Yeah. And now two things that you are actively involved in doing. <laughs> Literally my career, and, public and, speaking and sharks. And, and, and not only are you doing the public speaking now, but the very thing that took a part of, physically took a part of you is something that you're now trying to save. You're trying to help to yeah. save sharks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird how life works out. Um, but there was going to be no career progression in the Navy. Yeah. So I had to get uncomfortable again. I had to face my fear of public speaking because I, I, I slowly crept my way into it. It's just weird how sometimes these pivotal things happen in our lives and we change direction. Like you said before, you, you, you had to adapt, right? Mm -hmm. You had to be, totally. you had to improvise. Um, what was the last one? Overcome. Overcome. So, I mean, you have, and it's really extraordinary. So, so you, the, your first Shark Week, when, when was that? When was the first time you contributed to that? Well, it was just an interview to yeah. start with. Um, I think it was I Survived Jaws in 2013. And then I was just, you know, I was so used to doing interviews by then because I'd done 60 Minutes and Australian Story and news bulletins. And every time someone got attacked by a shark, they came from they my They came opinion. to you, yeah. And, and that's how I, I started learning about sharks out of necessity so I didn't look like a dumbass on television. And that's how I learned about the plight of the sharks and why 
um, I started getting involved in the conservation aspect of not just sharks, but ocean and you know, the planet. And it's all intertwined. You know, if you can look after one thing, then you should look after the other and the next and the next because this is our home and we're destroying it. Yeah. Um, they liked my interview so much, they decided to fly me out for the live talk show that's played during Shark Week, which is Shark After Dark, which was cool. Free trip to America and never turned that down. And I just, I fell in love with this place. Um, it, it's just, it really is such a land of opportunity. Um, it, it's, and, and the more I came out here, the more I wanted to be out here. Um, but you know, Shark Week loved the interview I did on the live talk show so much. The next year, they offered me a co-hosting job, and they liked that so much they gave me another one for a couple of years. So it started because I started co-hosting 2014, and then uh, two years ago, um, I was offered my own series on Nat Geo Wild, but Discovery Channel didn't want me to go to a competitor, so they made a counter offer, and this was my in. You know, I, we started negotiating, and they gave me a two-year contract, three shows a year. Can you believe A two-year working visa. And I'm like, oh, my God, these guys. And they, they started paying me really well. And now I'm, I, I'm at that point, I'm living in Australia, and I'm doing so much speaking. Um, and I'd saved up so much Can money. Can you just tell me that you said that, because I do speeches as well, and it's, it takes a lot. And you said you did 18 speeches in how many days? Six days. Yeah, that was that was the most ever. That could knock out even the toughest Marine. It I mean, was so hard. I know that I asked you to recall the story. Does it ever get tough for you to tell it again and again and again? Not in the idea people might think. And it's not a perspective of emotionally. Yes. You know, it's never been an emotional problem. I don't know. Like I've never had PTSD. I don't have PTSD. I've never had nightmares. I've never had flashbacks. I'm not even afraid of sharks anymore. I actually seek out sharks. Um, I, I've done great white sharks without a cage. So isn't 110 it crazy? Feet. I mean, it's you're a guy. It's so weird. You're a guy that was deathly afraid of sharks. Yeah. You get in the water. You're thinking about the shark the day that you get attacked. You get attacked by a ferocious bull shark. Yep. 600 pounds, you said. Mm -hmm. It takes a part of your body away from you and and now you don't have this fear it's really i think there's something strange. that happens to you when you come that close to death there's two ways you can go you either curl up in a ball and you're afraid of everything or you just realize that death's not something to be afraid of anymore because it's really not i i'm i would never seek out death i'm not trying to die i'm not I don't take um, risks outside of relative safety, but at the same time, I realize that there is a, death is not scary. It's just the start of another adventure. It, like when you're dead, you're not going to care that you're dead. So live your life. That that is the most terrifying thing for me. Not having a life that I can be proud of, a life of serving, a life of value and purpose. That's fears me more than dying well i really appreciate you sharing your story with us i just had a couple of questions i want to ask you uh, a road trip if you were to take a road trip paul and you could take anybody in the car with you um maybe it's a drive across america it could be a drive is, across australia it is, it's a drive across it's a, a drive around america in an rv with okay. my girlfriend and so my dog that's who that's who you take with you yeah 
That simple. Yeah, it's, it's, I'd love to do that. I, we were, I was talking about it yesterday. It's we were driving the best past thing. the RV parks. I'm like, oh man, I'd love to do that around America because America is such a great country to do yes. that. Everyone speaks English yep. for starters. <laughs> and the culture changes town by town and the accents change and the scenery changes. And that it's- intimacy is so wonderful where you're, you're, you're with people that you love and obviously your dog. What's mm-hmm. your dog's name? Otis. Otis. What kind of dog? He's a Great Dane cross plot hound. Love it. So he's about 90 pounds. He's a rescue. And, and I, I think this question is easy to answer for you. Uh, if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on earth, obviously you're not scared of dying, which is something you shared with us. But um, what would you want to do with your last day on earth? Ooh, I probably just want to go somewhere peaceful and just hang out, probably drink some beers, you know, probably go out into the woods and, and camp. Once again, with my girlfriend, my dog, with any of my friends that wanted to come and just go and be with people that mean the most and yeah, just hang out and have beers. That's what we do in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> mate, you are one amazing human being. Thanks, mate. And I really appreciate you taking a little time to share your story. And I'd like to shake your hand. You want the man grip or the girl grip? Just give me the man grip. The man I grip. can take it. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty okay. solid. That is solid. Yeah. And your your arm is making little beeping sounds. Which so that's means- me changing the grip. So it, I can go from neutral grip, which is that one, which is the normal sort of like, yeah. ne- just walking around, to what I call the man grip. So it opens up a little wider yeah. so I can grip a man's hand. And it's, and it's also good for holding a beer. Yeah, and crushing cans. And crushing, yeah. I, I think you could crush a can with that grip. <laughs> mate. I spy. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it's great technology. Thank God for smart people. Yeah, but listen, I, I can't wait to see what you're going to do in the future, and I hope you'll you'll come back and share some more stories. Lots of big things on the horizon. Yeah. yeah. Lots of stuff I'm excited about. Thank you, mate. Cheers. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>